You're listening to the Presence Pioneers Podcast. I want to start and, and talk about the worship that's happening in heaven, but I really want to get into the worship that King David set up and the culture of worship and the tent of worship that he established. We're going to dive into what that actually was because most people don't even understand what that means. But it's so important for you guys who are wanting to lead worship or be a part of worship cultures uh, to understand what David did. So as we look at heaven and what's going on in the heavenly throne room and the worship there, we, we understand David replicated that on the earth. And then we're going to try to figure out why he did that and how he got that idea and, and what that means for us. And so the reason this is important, there's lots of reasons that it's important, but the worship culture right now in the Western church is primarily man-centered. It's focused on a celebrity culture where it's about platform and it's about influence and it's about production and it's very human-centered. And, and there's honestly, there's a purity of worship that's been lost. And I believe what the Holy Spirit is doing is a restoration of true worship, true biblical priestly worship back to the church where Jesus himself is the one that receives all the glory and all the focus. Because the truth is, much of our worship, if we're honest, is really about us. And it's about our feelings. And it's not really about Jesus. But God is restoring true worship. I can stand up here and rail about the way worship culture is in much of the American church. But we need something more than that. We need a vision for what it is God actually wants and where we're actually going. And I think that's what David's tabernacle gives us, is it gives us a biblical vision for what God truly wants. And then we can look at where we are and where God wants us. And we can go, okay, here's the gap. Here's where we need to adjust. Here's where we need to reorient. And we want to be worshiping the way God wants us to worship. So my hope is to give you guys, even in some detail, what kind of worship God's desiring and what kind of worship he's awakening right now in those that are really pursuing him and wanting to be a part of what the Holy Spirit's doing in the earth right now. So that's where we're going. I want to start with heaven. As you look throughout the New Testament, you see Paul and others constantly stirring our hearts to think heavenly. Paul describes Jesus and the church as seated in heavenly places. And he encourages us to set our minds on things above that are not on the earth. The book of Hebrews talks about our heavenly calling. It says that, that we as Christians have tasted the heavenly gift. It says that those who walked by faith were those who desired a better country, a heavenly one. Jesus taught to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I love the fact that that phrase has sort of become pretty popular in the church, this idea of. We want heaven on the earth. There's a lot of songs, which I'm encouraged by, that are actually based on heaven and singing about heaven and, and what's going on in the throne room there. So Jesus' baseline taught us what's going on in heaven. His desire is that that would happen on the earth, right? So that begs the question, what is happening in heaven? And so Revelation 4 and 5 is probably the clearest picture that we have of that. This is the throne room of heaven. And if you guys aren't familiar with these chapters, read them. Get familiar with these two chapters. You probably already know a lot of the phrases because they're in a lot of our popular worship songs. But these two chapters give us a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. Now, I call the throne room of heaven God's man cave. 
So this is where God has his space just like he wants it, right? So a man cave is where a dude has like a garage or a shed or something and like he sets it up just like he wants it. He's got either, you know, pool table or TV or, you know, a fridge with all his favorite drinks or whatever it may be, or tools or whatever. So that's the guy's man cave. In heaven, the heavenly throne room is God's man cave. This is where he has things exactly how he wants it. God says, this is my space, because Jesus said that, right? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will is already being done in heaven. That's why I call it his man cave, because we can be assured that what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is what God wants. This is what he desires, exactly. He doesn't wish he could change any of this. Now, we're not going to read through those two chapters right now and go through it, but I just want to lay out a couple of points here as a launching point into David. What's happening in the heavenly throne room? God's throne is in the center. All eyes are on him. There are four living creatures and 24 elders around the throne. These heavenly, you could call them angels. They're not technically angels, but four living creatures, 24 elders around the throne, myriads of angels surrounding them. And the worship is musical. So these 24 elders that are around the throne of God have harps in their hands. Do you guys know there's music in heaven around God? God's man cave, he says, what I want in heaven, people singing to me. That's crazy to me that God could have whatever he wants. And he says, I want people singing to me around my throne day and night constantly. That's the next point, that the worship and prayers continue nonstop. There's human worshipers gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God says, I want every tribe, tongue, and nation around my throne, bringing their unique expression and their unique song from their cultures, from their language, as an offering to me of worship. Why? It says over and over again, because he is worthy of this worship. Day and night, night and day, thousands and thousands and thousands. Right now, Around the throne of God, these angels are going, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, all blessing and honor and glory and power. And they're bowing down and they're singing and they're crying out and they're praising him. Right now, that's happening in heaven and around the throne of God. And Jesus said, let's pray for the kingdom of God to come to earth, for what's happening in heaven to be manifested here in our lives, in our cities, in our nations around the world. And so David, David got a glimpse into what was going on in heaven and started bringing it to earth in a really unique way. Heavenly worship is Christian worship. David's worship mirrored heaven and therefore Davidic worship is Christian worship. Does that make sense? So what David did, what's happening in heaven is what we should do. We're trying to get clues here. Heaven gives you a lot of help and what David did gives you a lot of help in understanding the kind of worship that God desires. So as I go through what David did, I'm going to be comparing the heavenly throne room and David's tabernacle and the worship order that he established. And I'm going to also contrast it some with the tabernacle that Moses had set up before that. All right, overview of David's tabernacle. As king of Israel, David takes the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory rested in Israel. They took that Ark and set it up in a tent in Jerusalem when David became the king of all 12 tribes, set up Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the new capital, and he brought the Ark to Jerusalem, set it up on a hill called Mount Zion, 
put it in a tent and trained the Levites as musicians and singers to praise God and worship there for 33 years. Nonstop worship with music around the Ark of the Covenant for 33 years. This is David's tabernacle or the tabernacle of David. Very few Christians even realize David had a tabernacle. Even many pastors are unfamiliar with it. But in First Chronicles, you get some of the story and the narrative of David's tabernacle. And then in the Psalms, you get a lot of other details. And we all love the Psalms, right? I mean, as worshipers, as, as Christians. But the Psalms give us so much insight because most of the Psalms were actually written either by David or by the guys that he trained around his tent, around his tabernacle. They were written during this time. So David's reign as the king was the high point of Israel's history. There was victory in battle, unity among the tribes, and justice in the land. Number five here, David as a man after God's own heart is a type of Jesus Christ. In other words, he foreshadows Jesus. David's kingdom points to the kingdom of God, and as we study David and his kingdom, we learn about Jesus and his kingdom. What David manifested in a limited geography in Israel, Jesus will manifest on a worldwide scale. Now, I just said like so much in those few paragraphs, and I'm going to just let them just kind of land and be there for right now without going into it, because I want to begin to just describe to you what was happening in this tent that David set up in Jerusalem on Mount Zion for 33 years and describe the kind of worship that was happening there. Because like I said, Davidic worship is Christian worship. The worship of David's tabernacle shows us the kind of worship God desires in our lives and in our churches and our communities. Dimensions of David's tabernacle. So I want to describe what David was doing and what was happening in Israel during these 33 years. Like I said, there was a new tent that was set up in Jerusalem But what's interesting is we don't get any description of this tent. The original tabernacle, normally when you say tabernacle, people think the the one that Moses set up. And that tabernacle has all kinds of description of what's going on in it. There's all kinds of decorations. There's certain materials. There's furniture with very specific instructions on what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to function. All the Levites and priests had very detailed instructions on how they were supposed to go about their ministry. That's why it's boring for most people to read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? Because it's going into painstaking detail about this specific tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the center of the center room, veiled, covered, hidden away from the people of God in this original tabernacle. David takes the Ark sets it up in a brand new tent. There's no description of what the tent looked like. There's no indication of any other furniture or decor. As far as we know, it's a simple tent with just the ark, just the presence of God there in it. And David makes the focus, and as you read through First Chronicles, the focus is on God, his presence, and the people, the worshipers. That's the focus, not on all the details of the furniture and the ritual and all those kinds of things that are going on in the original tabernacle. So the priority of David's tabernacle was the presence and the glory of God. That was the focus. Everything, like in heaven, was centered around this ark, this presence of God in their midst. When I describe the presence of God, I want to be clear. 
We're not talking about sort of God's aura or his like essence. It's not like a cloud that God sends down from heaven. Oh, the presence of God. God's presence is himself. You're in my presence today because I'm here. I'm in the room. I don't send my presence. God comes in our midst and he's a relational God. And so when we say that David's tabernacle was centered on the presence of God, what we mean is it was a relational presence and the people were interacting with God in personal relationship and in intimacy with the Lord. You know, you can be near somebody and not be near somebody and not be close to them. Does that make sense? So like, you ever have had a tense moment with somebody and so like you know your relationship's not good but like you're close to them like in proximity to them like you're in the same room but you've got like got some issues going on and it's like you're in their presence but like you're not close right there's a disconnect relationally with that person and so what God's after is not just that we would be in proximity to him he wants our hearts in connection with him and that we would actually be in like a love relationship with him, that we would love him, he would love us, our hearts would be open. His heart is open to us already all the time. So that's what it means to be centered in the presence of God. It means to be close to him, close to an omnipresent God, but he manifests himself among us and we can connect with him when our hearts are open. So not only was this tent that David set up very simple, very raw as far as we know, The focus isn't really on the aesthetic at all. But David and the Levites who worshipped there were able to come right up to the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God in worship. And this was unheard of in the days of Israel. It describes in 1 Chronicles the Levites singing their songs before the Ark of God. In other words, they were coming right up to the, the manifested glory and presence of God that was resting over the Ark and they were standing in front of it, and they were singing their praises and their worship straight to God. And this had never happened before, even for the Levites. David's described, here, First Chronicles 17, 16, it says, David went in and sat before the Lord and said, and then he literally starts having a conversation with God uh, right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And David wasn't even a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. That's a whole different... He wasn't even supposed to be involved in any of the priestly anything. (laughs) He was supposed to be the king. And he's in there singing songs and, and ministering to God too. So there's all these weird things going on with David's tabernacle. But the access that they had to God and his glory and his presence was very unusual because in the original tabernacle... The only time you went close to the ark was the high priest went into the Holy of Holies one time a year to offer atonement for the sins of Israel. Otherwise, everything was kind of happening on the periphery. But all of a sudden, what was in the hidden Holy of Holies is now out in the open on Mount Zion in David's day, which, is, which was very unusual. But what this points to is the access that we have to the presence of God in Jesus Christ. He is our high priest, and he shed his blood, paid the price, and opened up the door, torn the veil, so that we can now come right to the presence of God. We can come, as it says in Hebrews, boldly to the throne of grace and worship. We stand even more so than those Levites did in David's tabernacle. We stand before God and we, we sing and we worship and we pray and we interact with the Lord right in His presence. We have an even greater glory than they had in those days. 
So the worship in David's tabernacle was presence-centered. And I believe the worship God desires in his church is worship that is presence-centered, that is Jesus-centered. It's time that we reorient around him rather than around even preaching or personalities or programs. We need God himself, his very presence in our midst and let everything else flow out of that preaching and programs, whatever, but his presence has to be central and it has to be prioritized. That's the way it is in heaven. And I believe that's the way God desires it here on the earth. So the, the worship in David's tabernacle was presence centered. Number two, there was priestly ministry to the Lord and the sacrifices that were offered to God. So there's the old tent over here, Moses's tabernacle. You know, the Holy of Holies has got the ark in it. It's hidden. The way they're worshiping in this tabernacle is burnt offerings, right? They're offering God sacrifices of, you know, animals and grains and things that they've produced. That's how they worship. That's how God told Israel to worship. They weren't singing to God in this tabernacle. That was not how they worshiped. There was some music in some of Israel's culture, but it wasn't their priestly ministry to the Lord. What they did is they offered these burnt offerings. And then in David's tabernacle, he says, now we're going to offer praise to God as our offerings instead of the burnt offerings and the animal sacrifices. So they actually stopped doing that in David's tabernacle. They stopped the burnt offerings and they started singing to God instead. And this was, was revolutionary. So they offered praise as their offerings. They were singing, they were shouting, they were dancing, clapping, lifting their hands, kneeling, playing instruments, etc. As you read through the Psalms. And these things, you guys go, oh yeah, of course they were. This is normal worship, right? We just call this worship. But in David's day, this was revolutionary. And if you read through the scriptures, all of a sudden, David shows up and boom, everybody's like singing and dancing and shouting and sort of what we know as worship today. And it for years puzzled me and I go, where the heck did David get this idea from? Like, why is everything suddenly shifting and changing in his day? And how did he get away with it? Why did God let him get away with it? This was unprecedented. In David's tabernacle, their praise was priestly. They were related to God through their worship. He was enthroned in their praises. Now, again, this, all, this is all pointing to Jesus and it points to the truth that we are now priests in Jesus, just as he's our high priest, and we are now called to minister to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15 says to offer sacrifices of praise to God in Jesus Christ. But this was a revolutionary aspect of David's tabernacle. All right. Number one, it was present-centered. Number two, praise was priestly. Number three, there was musical excellence and creativity. So. David, like I said, he started this revolutionary musical expression of worship. He got the Levites, who were the ones that were doing the barbecue at the original tabernacle, cooking all this meat for Jesus. And they, now he's like, now you guys are going to take instruments and start singing. You're not going to be chefs anymore. Now you're going to be artists, and you're going to create music, and that's going to be your priestly ministry to the Lord. That's what you're going to be offering to God. The Levites were trained and skilled. I got Bible here. First Chronicles 15, 22, 25, 7, Psalm 33, 3, 
David and the other leaders, they trained up in their craft and in their skills. And so we should steward the gifts God's given us well, right? We should do them with excellence. We should take lessons and take the time and practice and learn music theory and all that kind of stuff, right? And do our best. That's, that's the heart of it. It's not about meeting some standard from somebody else, but it's about really investing, stewarding, and doing the best we can with what God's, what God's given us, being trained and skilled. Not only were they trained and skilled, but they util, utilized a variety of instruments and creative sounds. So there were all kinds of, you know, if you read Psalm 150, there were, you know, harps and lyres and cymbals and drums and flutes and trumpets and all these kinds of creative music and sounds. David actually built his own instruments. Isn't that cool? So I don't know if David was like building his own harp or something like that, or if, or if David was actually building instruments that had never been built before, which is kind of a neat idea to think about, that perhaps there were sounds and songs that he wanted to offer God that, you know, there was no way to express that yet. And so he was trying to find new, new ways to express his worship. I don't know. But either way, there was creativity happening. There was creative expression, a variety of sounds, songs, but they were trained as well, and they were doing it skillfully. There was massive amount of resource and wealth that went towards uh, what David did in staffing and training and resourcing. Can a musician say amen? And every musician that has to buy gear is like, yes, Lord, send the money. So, but I, I do think there's something about value there where David said worship is important. It's valuable. Even the music is important and valuable. And um, I'm grateful in many ways the church is, has started investing more money in music and even production and, and some of those things in a, in a lot of spheres. And that's important. I do think we need more resources going towards musicians and singers and worship leaders who are primarily ministering to the Lord and not necessarily to the crowds of people on the weekends. And so I think one of the things that I would love to see is more worship leaders and worship staff, even from churches, spending more time as their job actually worshiping, worshiping the Lord in private, worshiping the Lord in prayer rooms and, and things throughout the week, cultivating that like the Levites did. They weren't paid to do production and lead worship. They were paid to worship. Their job was to stand in front of that ark and sing to God. Like That's what David was paying, not all of them, but some of them at least to do. So he realized that that ministering to God, whether there was a crowd there or not, was valuable and important for their nation. Uh, at the end of David's reign, when he was about to pass everything off to Solomon, he collected this offering. You can go back and look, First Chronicles 29, and people estimate that it's worth like equivalent to a billion dollars right now that would go towards the staffing and the manpower, and, and it would go towards building the temple that Solomon would build. But this was the kind of culture that was going on in David's tabernacle, was they're shifting resources to the ministry that's hosting the presence of God at the center of their nation and ministering to the Lord first. And they're saying, we've got to prioritize this and value this and invest in it and develop people in it and put money where our mouth is because hosting God with our worship is the most important thing for our lives 
and for Jerusalem and for Israel. And hey, maybe this is why David's reign was considered the high point of Israel's history. And maybe that's why he's looked at as the prototypical king that everyone else wanted to be like and why there was justice and why he's celebrated is because he, as much as anybody, prioritized God's presence. And you see that so clearly through his emphasis on the value of music and creativity and the value for the Levites that were doing this ministry. The music was not David's personal preference. So he was the king and he had access to a lot of resources, but this was not David just saying, oh, I like music. So let's now have musical worship, and this is what I want. David, it says the Bible, was a man after God's own heart. David wanted what God wanted. And like I said earlier, God's man cave, right? In heaven, he's got musical worship happening around his throne. And I think David said, hey, that's what God wants. That's what God likes. Let's do it here on the earth, and let's, let's offer him that here in our city. All right, so that was number three, musical excellence and creativity. Number four, multi-generational discipleship and team ministry. First Chronicles 25, verse 1. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service of song the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, harps, and with cymbals. Verse 5, because it just lists out the names there. Then verse 5. I'm at verse 6. They were under the direction of their father in the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the order of the king. Verse 7, the number of them along with their brothers who were trained, there's that training, by the way, trained in singing to the Lord and who were skillful was 288. All right, so... Lots of stuff, lots of cool stuff going on here in these, in these couple of verses with the, with the musicians. So it's describing 288 musicians. And if you read through the, the list of all the names and that kind of things, you have basically 12 worship leaders, 24 team leaders. And each of those 24 had 12 on their team. So 12 times 24 is where you get the 288. So you've got 24 and it says that their fathers, their worship fathers, they're leading their, their teams of 12. And you can see exactly here what they're doing. They're prophesying with their instruments. They're trained and they're skillful. And they're taking shifts together, leading worship, worshiping the Lord, and standing before the ark of God. So you get this picture of this culture of discipleship and training and team ministry that was happening, it was organized. It was not totally haphazard. I mean, it's maybe not organized in the Western sense of the word, but there was obviously some organization to this thing, right? There was some order to it, and there was some intentionality about raising up from generation to generation worshipers who were spiritually and musically mature in what God had called them to do and in their, in their ministry of worship. So the way this probably worked, just as like kind of a nerdy piece of information, is the way it probably worked is that team of 12 would come in for a week, and then the next team of 12 would come for a week. So they'd basically come twice a year. It'd be like a week-long missions trip to Jerusalem 
where they'd come in Jerusalem and they'd take their week before the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a whole slew of other musicians, which we'll look at in a minute, but there was a bunch of other musicians that would join in. There were some people that were there in Jerusalem year long. Um, but there were literally these families that lived together, grew in their music together, learned to worship the Lord together, and they were trained up. So lots of cool stuff here. There were 24 worship leaders. I'm just going to call them worship leaders. They're the fathers of these teams. 24 worship leaders in David's tabernacle. Do you remember how many elders there are around the throne of God in heaven? There's 24 elders around the throne of heaven. And the 24 elders have harps in their hands. So thousand years before the apostle John has a vision of Revelation 4 and 5 of what's going on in the heavenly throne room, David is doing it in Jerusalem. So 24 elders, 24 worship leaders in the tabernacle of David. And there's so many, so many things that God wants us to catch here. God desires discipleship. God desires family. He desires us to function together from generation to generation. All of us should have those who are older than us or those who are more experienced than us that, that we're learning from and gleaning from and receiving wisdom from. And then all of us should have those that are coming up behind us that we're helping, that we're pouring into, that we're, no matter how old or young you are, that should always be the case. You should always have people you're learning from and following and honoring that are ahead of you and those that are behind you that you're pouring into and raising up and training. And, and so that, that way from generation to generation, things keep going on. One of the things that happens sometimes in worship culture, especially because you get like musical preferences and all that kind of mixed, mixed in with it, is the generations kind of segment from each other because it's like, oh, that's the old way of doing it. And we're the new generation and we've got the new thing and this is what's fresh. And, you know, yeah, it's the millennials that are going to bring revival. Oh, it's Gen Z that's going to bring revival. And it's like, but God's vision is that we would work together, young and old, and move together as the family of God to worship him together. So I encourage you in that, that we would, that we would move together. So, so by the time, this is the bottom of page four, by the time David's reign is, had ended, the culture of discipleship had multiplied and there were 4,000 trained musicians. That's there. You can flip over a couple pages. First Chronicles 23, 5. 4,000 gatekeepers and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with instruments. That's a lot of musicians, guys. <laughs> that's a big band. That's a big choir. That's a big orchestra. I mean, even for today's, for today's standards. So in 33 years, I don't know what, what, how exactly this worked out, but in 33 years, they had trained up 4,000 musicians who were prepared to worship and to minister to the Lord. So in later generations, as they continued this Davidic worship in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, you get another kind of cool picture of this team ministry that was happening. They actually had choirs that sang back and forth to each other. Nehemiah 12, verse 24, the leaders of the Levites, uh, it lists out their names here, and their associates stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. Listen to this. One section responding to another as prescribed by David the man of God. That's Nehemiah 12, 24. Isn't that cool? So there's a couple other verses that reference this same idea. Ezra, it also mentions it. This is called antiphonal singing uh, or responsive singing. So it's this idea of bouncing back and forth between the different groups worshiping together. 
actually see the same thing in heaven, by the way. If you read through Revelation 5, you see the four living creatures say, holy, holy, holy. The 24 elders say, worthy is the lamb. All the myriads of angels start responding, yes, amen. And then they fall down, this group falls down on their feet, and there's just bouncing back and forth. All these different groups are engaging and responding to one another, and someone gets a glimpse, and they sing it, and you go, oh, yeah, that's right. And he's also like this, and then this person over here goes, yeah, but God's also holy. And then this group over here goes, yes, and he's also worthy, and, and he's all blessing. And then this group goes, all power. And, and they're, they're together, they're, they're looking at the glory of God, and they're moving together as a team and, and growing in their understanding and revelation of who he is together because it's not just one person that's sort of carrying the whole thing. Hey guys, this is Matthew. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider joining Presence Pioneers Premium, our brand new subscriber community. Paid subscribers will get exclusive premium content such as bonus podcast episodes, exclusive articles, early releases, and more. Presence Pioneers will be releasing its first e-course in 2024 with many more to come. And the Presence Pioneers premium subscribers will always have full access to the entire library of online courses. Visit media presencepioneers.org or click the link in the description to join today. You can become a premium member today for an introductory price of only $5 a month. When the price goes up in the future, as our library of resources grows, you can stay subscribed at the original price. If you've enjoyed our podcast for a while, becoming a premium member is a simple way for you to help us cover the cost of producing this podcast and partner with Presence Pioneers in equipping the church with resources for day and night prayer, prophetic worship, missions, and revival. Visit media.presencepioneers.org to sign up today. And so I believe, you know, the, the one-man show stuff has got to come to an end. We've got to learn to move together as the body of Christ with all the various gifts He's given us, with us humbly serving one another, giving preference to one another, and, um, and even in a context of a worship team, which can sometimes get a little confusing, but that, that we can give preference to one another, singers and worship leaders doing things together, I think. There's more of that that can probably happen. So my point in all that was discipleship, team ministry, moving together as generations within multiple giftings and all that kind of thing. All right, the the worship in David's tabernacle was prophetic and spirit-led. So you see this phrase all throughout the Psalms about singing a new song to God. Have you heard that phrase? Sing to the Lord a new song. So the worship in David's tabernacle was frequently spontaneous and prophetic. There were new songs that that were written, sometimes pre-written and then sung in the tent, and then there were songs that were written in the moment as they're just worshiping, and the Holy Spirit is moving and stirring their hearts, and they begin to sing out to God in the moment, spontaneously. The singers were obviously carrying a lot of this, and 
The reason we know there were prophetic songs is, number one, we read it a moment ago, 1 Chronicles 25, that they prophesied with their harps and their lyres and, and their instruments. Number two is we have in the Psalms, David and Asaph and the guys that are writing these songs, they're singing about Jesus in the Psalms a thousand years early. And a lot of the prophetic things that Jesus fulfilled as the promised Messiah were the songs that they were singing in this tent in Jerusalem. And they're worshiping the Lord and they're before the ark and they're seeing the Messiah. They're singing the King of Israel that's coming, that's going to bring freedom and deliverance and justice and holiness and righteousness to the earth. And they begin singing about what, what they're seeing prophetically, but the Holy Spirit's giving them understanding and they begin to sing about it. Somebody's writing it down. They had scribes that would write down some of it, or maybe they were getting it in their private time with the Lord, writing it down and then bringing it. Who knows how all that worked? But either way, th there's prophetic songs that David and the crew sang, and they were fulfilled a thousand years later, accurately, perfectly accurately. That's cool. <laughs> That's a good prophetic song, by the way. And so some of them actually haven't even been fulfilled yet. They're actually going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Uh, some of them point to his second coming, which is, which is also really cool. So there's this environment of spirit-filled, spirit-led, they're getting revelation and understanding of God. They're seeing the things that he wants to do in Jerusalem and Israel and in the earth. And then they're singing and expressing that with their worship, with their songs, and with their music. And I don't think it was just the singers that did this. I actually think the musicians were doing this too. So for any of you that are musicians, music, even instrumental music, the sounds speak something. They communicate something. You've heard the phrase like a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Why? Because there's something true about what you're seeing that communicates truth beyond what you have to describe with your words. Music's the same way. Something about art and dancing and instrumental music, there's truth that's being communicated. There's understanding. There's realities that can be communicated through that. And sometimes that can speak to somebody even more deeply than if you tried to use a language, a human language, and sing it or speak it. Uh, so I believe that music, art, dancing, these expressions can be prophetic, meaning they can speak uh, what God wants to do. So there could be moments where God is wanting to reveal something about himself in worship and a musician understanding that or feeling that or hearing that or seeing that and they can begin to if they're trained and skillful by the way they can begin to release the best they can an expression of music that aligns with what god is speaking and wanting to do in that moment and that's what we call prophetic worship or you can sing it if you're a singer and that's prophetic worship is where what God's wanting to do in that moment is we're doing our best to align with that and then express that onto the earth. And I think that's what was happening in David's tabernacle. And very closely related to that is this idea of intercession and prayer is because not only was, were they seeing uh, prophetically maybe Jesus and the Messiah, but they were seeing God's purposes for Israel and Jerusalem for their city. So as they're in the presence of God and worshiping, all of a sudden, as they're drawing close to the heart of God, God goes, I, I want peace in Jerusalem. 
and they go, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, as they're in God's presence and saying, God, we want whatever you want. We love your heart, you know, <laughs> and singing to him. And he goes, okay, here's my heart. This is what I want for your city. This is what I want for your campus. This is what I want for your family. This is what I want for your nation. And so prayer and intercession also starts to flow out of this worship. And you see that throughout the Psalms as well. So there was this prophetic, spirit-led, intercessory expression of worship at David's tabernacle. Number six, their worship was biblical. Again, I like the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is an amazing gift from God. Now, David, they didn't have the whole Bible in David's day. What they had is the Torah. They had the first five books of the Bible. And it said they meditated on it day and night in Psalms 1-2. And it says in Psalm 119.54, I love this. It's right here in the middle of page five. David says, your statutes have been my songs. I love that. So they're taking God's word, what they had of it at the time, and they're using that as the fuel for their worship. And I want to encourage you guys, if the Bible is not a part of your worship, then it's going to get weird in a bad way. <laughs> so, and I've seen this over and over again where maybe immature worship leaders, they sing their feelings to a fault with, without also bringing to bear the truth of God's word into what they're feeling in the moment, okay? So Jesus said we worship in spirit and in truth, right? So I just talked about the spirit, the prophetic, but we also worship in truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? It does mean we bring our real, raw, authentic feelings to God. That's part of it. We need real, raw worship. That's great. But it also means the unflinching truth of the word of God. So that's what you, when you read the Psalms, what I love about it is David will go, woe is me, my enemies are out to get me, God, kill them, <laughs> like, like people, are, people hate me, this is horrible. Like he's being real, right? That's why we love to read the Psalms because we go, yeah, me too, God. And so we, we read that, but then David also says, but you, Lord, are my refuge and my strength, and I will put my trust in you. You will never leave me. And, and so... It's both of those things colliding together that makes the Psalms so powerful is it's like, yeah, like sometimes life sucks, but God is awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's, the, that's why we need God's word. We need to read God's word as worship, worshipers, worship leaders. We need to fill ourselves with it. And then when the spontaneous moments come and we want something to sing, we filled ourselves with the word of God and the Holy Spirit can pull out the truth that we've been depositing. We can make a withdrawal on that in the moment. And we actually have something to sing that has the authority and the power of God's word behind it. There's something about God's word that's strong and powerful when we speak it, when we sing it. And uh, so I want to encourage you. We need the Holy Spirit, but we need the Holy Scriptures too in our worship. Uh, as you're songwriting this week or whatever, if you need something to write, just plagiarize the Bible. Just grab phrases and use them. I mean, that's what most worship music is. Thank, I mean, some of it's not. But the, the good worship music is. A lot of it's just phrases and ideas and themes and stuff from the Bible. And uh, get used to singing it and just saturate your life and your, your worship with the Word of God. All right. So we've got through, through sort of six distinctives. I want to hit these last two and then... I want to get into really what's a little bit of sort of like theology. <laughs> so the other aspect of 
Davidic worship is that it was non-stop. It was literally continual. First Chronicles 16.37 said the Levites ministered continually, day and night. Uh, Psalm 134 describes those that ministered to God in the night. So it says, blessed are you servants of the Lord who by night stand in the house of the Lord. So there were actually third shift worshipers who, yeah, night watch, who would be two, three in the morning, singing, standing before that ark, worshiping the Lord, ministering to him. So whether, whether David's tabernacle in this tent, whether the song literally never stopped for 33 years or not, I don't know. But I think that they were leaning towards that if, they, if it was not literally happening 24-7. Uh, and that there was a sense of constant worship happening in that tent and in that tabernacle. And one of the reasons I believe that is because that's what's happening in heaven. And as we've seen, and as I'm going to recap in a minute, David's tabernacle was an attempt to bring the worship of heaven to the earth. And in heaven, they literally, it says they do not cease crying, holy, holy, holy day and night. But guess what? There's no night in heaven. So they cry out in heaven day and night, but there's no night. It doesn't mean day and night. It means that they never stop. <laughs> That's what it means. It means it's constant. It's 24 hours a day. And so there's similar phrases in the New Testament where that verse I read earlier, Hebrews 13, 15, where we're called to continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Uh, Jesus said there'd be those before he returned that would cry out day and night in Luke 18. Paul said famously to pray without ceasing. And so there's... There's a couple of implications for us. What does this mean nonstop? Number one, worship is more than just something we go in and out of. Worship is our lives. And God desires an ongoing connection with our hearts everywhere we go, and that all, all of our life would be offered to Him as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice pleasing to Him. So there's a personal application where it's like in our hearts, if you can think of it as like a tent of, of constant love for God, right? We keep that flame burning, you know, that fire on the altar of our hearts going perpetually. And so, so there's this idea, Brother Lawrence wrote this book called Practicing the Presence of God on his journey where he was learning, even while he's in a kitchen watch, washing dishes, like how does he keep his heart connected to God and aware of God, even as he's doing other things throughout his day? So there's that idea that our hearts have this day and night connection to God, but then there's also a corporate dynamic to it where we as the people of God are gathering day and night and hosting the presence of God regularly. And more and more you're seeing this all over the world where there's communities that are either on a daily basis or on for hours at a time or even 24-7 in some places doing worship and prayer. And there's a, there's a sense in which God is inviting the church to break out of just sort of Sunday morning Christianity and say, what does it mean to be connected to me constantly? What does it mean as a church to create resting places and dwelling places for God and for his presence? So many churches and missions bases are, are leaning into that corporate dynamic of, of nonstop or day and night worship and prayer like what was happening in David's tabernacle. In fact, there's David's tent, D.C., where in Washington, D.C., there's a literal tent 
where they've done this again, where there's just nonstop music and worship, and it's been going now eight in September. So yeah, li- literally a taking a cue out of David's playbook there and setting up in our nation's capital here in the United States to worship God 24 hours a day, which is awesome. I love David's tent DC, and you guys should check it out and go take sets there and visit some. I make a point to get there at least once a year, at least to lead, lead a worship set. So just kind of the last dimension I want to highlight of, of what David was doing was that it was missional. Now this might seem uh, like an odd thing to describe what David was doing, but what we see from the very beginning of David's tabernacle is that God was desiring not just Israel to worship, but every nation to come into that same worship, that same relationship with God that David was experiencing. So First Chronicles 16, David gets the tabernacle set up, the, the very first tent set up, and they sing the inaugural song. This is the first song they're going to sing at David's tent. And it starts out about God and Israel and his relationship and his faithfulness, a song of praise and thanksgiving. But then it shifts into the nations coming before God and worshiping him. First Chronicles 16, and later this same song would be used in some of the Psalms. And so David's written this prophetic song. He gives it to his worship leaders and said, let's sing this first. Like I said, it's about God's covenant with Israel and his faithfulness to them. But then verse 23, something shifts, and it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. All the earth. So something's shift, shifting where from the very beginning, they're going, oh, look, for our city and our tribe and our nation, look, we've got this cool new worship tent. We've got a new capital city, a new kingdom. David's united us together. This is a great, beautiful moment. And David's going, God's got something bigger he's doing. <laughs> it's bigger than just Israel. Something's going to happen in the nations of the earth, and somehow they're all going to get in on this too, and they're going to get to to come and experience this presence and this glory and this God of Israel and know him as well. So from the very beginning, there is something missional and international about what was going on in David's tabernacle that was very unique. Another little hint at this is there was this guy named Obed-Edom. So if you know the story Uh, when they're bringing the ark in to Jerusalem to set up David's tabernacle, they had a little mishap the first time, and a guy named Uzzah touches the ark and dies. And David's like, oh crap, what are we going to do? So he takes the ark and drops it off at this guy Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom is a Gentile. He's not an Israelite. And for three months, it sits there, and Obed-Edom is super blessed, like he's all his crops are growing, all his animals are being productive, you know, like his, you know, stock portfolio is doing great. And like, he's like, everything's going great for Obed-Edom. And so David comes and gets the ark and then brings it to Jerusalem. But what's crazy is Obed-Edom goes with them 
to the tent, a Gentile, and later when you see the list of gatekeepers that were there, Obed-Edom is listed as one of the Levite gatekeepers, even though he's not a Levite. So you've got this Gentile that's, that's brought in. He experienced the presence of God, and God allows him already to come in. And so you start, get, you start seeing these hints at like something bigger is going on here than just this one nation. And again, in heaven, around the throne of God, what do you see? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered together, bringing their worship. And so I'll say again, point B here in the middle of page six, what David did locally, Jesus is doing globally. So this tabernacle of David, this David's tabernacle, the the heart of it, the spirit of it is being restored, being released through the church, through Jesus Christ. We are now the dwelling place. We are now the tabernacle. It's our hearts, but it's we as the people of God also together Living stones, it says in First Peter, built together as a house for the glory of God. So David's tent from the very beginning was not just about, oh, we're gonna get to get we're gonna get to have this fun, vibey, creative worship time, but it was about God setting up a tent and inviting all people. So there's this like missional component to it of like, hey, the tent is open, it's not this this old this old tabernacle where the veil is, is keeping people out from the presence of God, but there's a new tent, and the tent is open. <clears throat> you can come into the presence of God, and it points us to the gospel of what Jesus has done and in inviting all people to come uh, and know God through him, what he's, what he's done. All right, it's awesome. I love it. So I want to take a minute and explain maybe a little bit of like why he did what he did and what that means for us and how he got away with it because I've already pointed out a couple of places where it's kind of what David did was weird and it was actually revolutionary and it was unprecedented and how did he get away with it and why did God allow it and why did God seem to actually bless it and talk about restoring it again what was going on with David and his tabernacle because it seems out of place. It seems like New Testament, 33 years of New Testament stuck in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Kind of before his time. So understanding David's worship revolution. Second Chronicles 29-25, I think, gives us some insight. Before I read the verse, let me give context. After David's day, Israel went through a series of ups and downs, to say the least. So they would turn from God, turn to idols, turn to rebellion, and God would rebuke them, and they would repent and turn back to the Lord, right? And there'd be a, a, they'd have a good king, and that king would help them get back, or, you know, prophet or judge or whatever. They'd get back on track, and then they turn from God, they get back on track, right? Um, so that's sort of like all throughout Israel's, Israel's history. What you notice as you read through Chronicles, when they would get back on track, Part of what they would do is they would restore worship according to the way David did worship. So you can go back and find these phrases like according to the commandment of David. So the good kings would go back and do what David did. That was sort of what they were always pointing back to. And so this is in 2 Chronicles 29. This is one of those accounts. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Josiah's uh, when he was the king. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres according to the commandment of David, and this is the interesting part, and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord 
through the prophets. Okay, so now we're starting to see David had some kind of prophetic insight, probably from these dudes, Nathan and Gad, who had insight and revelation, understanding of what God was wanting to do. I believe revelation of the heavenly throne room and the kind of worship that's taking place in the kingdom of God that God wants to take place on the earth. Now, we don't know when anything happened. We don't know when David got this idea. We don't know if it was a dream or we don't have any record of any of that. But somehow, David got prophetic vision for what was going on in heaven, either from himself or from one of these other prophets, and said, we're going to bring it to the earth. I just want to recap a lot of this I've already looked at, but just so you can see the comparisons between the heavenly throne room and the tabernacle of David. This is cool, so check in for just a second if you're checked out. You take Revelation 4 and 5, and you take First Chronicles, which I know, who hasn't done this, right? You, know, you take them and, and put them on top of each other. You see some, just some cool stuff. So, A, the throne is in the center of the heavenly throne room, just as the ark was in the center of Jerusalem in David's tabernacle. Everything centered around God. B, the elders in heaven offer sacrifices of musical praise and intercessory prayer as ministry to the Lord, just as David's tabernacle introduced intercessory worship into the priesthood of Israel. C, John describes the prayers of the saints as incense before God in heaven, and David saying that his prayers would be like incense before God. D, in heaven the four living creatures worship day and night, and David established worship day and night in the tent. There was also David and his three guys uh, we read about earlier, uh, his sort of his three main leaders. So those four could also potentially correspond with those four there. Oh, that's my next point. Oh, okay. <laughs> in, in E here. Uh, F, around the heavenly throne room, worship is pouring forth from 24 elders who lead the worship or lead heaven in musical praise. King David established 24 worship leaders who led the teams of musicians. G, around the throne, there are thousands and thousands of angels singing to God day and night. And King David had 4,000 Levites that sang and played instruments to the Lord day and night. H, the antiphony of worship from the various groups in Revelation 5 reflect the antiphonal worship that was part of the Davidic order, especially seen in the stories of Nehemiah and Ezra. More than coincidence, what, what's going on here is a clear pattern that David understood what was going on in the heavenly throne room and was, was manifesting it on earth in a unique way. And I believe David's tabernacle helps us see uh, how God's called us to worship. Now, a little bit of theology. So Zion, a throne in the tabernacle. God's government flows from worship. He is enthroned in praises. This is what's crazy about the heavenly throne room. It's the governmental center of the universe, and it's also... A temple. It's a place of government and judging and ruling and reigning, but it's also a place of singing and prayer and worship. That's odd. <laughs> That's not what you would expect for the environment that a king would rule and reign from. God says, I'm going to rule over the universe, release my decrees and my power and all that I want to do and the context from which I'm going to rule and reign over the entire universe is going to be my sons and daughters around me having conversations with me and singing their praises to me with the angels. That's weird. I mean, that, like, 
what if Congress was like, okay, we've got to, we've got to decide if we're going to pass this bill or not, so make sure the worship team's going, get the pad going so, we can, so that we can make sure that we're governing in an environment of the glory of God. I mean, it's like, this is crazy. But this is the environment from which God releases his, his power and from which he leads and governs and rules. And you see this pattern throughout the Scripture that there's always a throne in a tabernacle. Okay, so in David's day, it was the ark. The ark was called the throne of God, and it was in the tabernacle. In heaven, you see the throne of God in the midst of the tabernacle. And as we worship, Psalms 22.3 says, God is what? Enthroned in our praises. There's a throne, even as we worship today, where God is in the midst. What that means is, is, as, is when we worship, an environment of his presence is created. And when the king comes to a place, he brings his kingdom with him into that place. And it begins to be manifested. The domain of the king, his kingdom. So if we are worshiping the Lord together and his glory and his presence is in our midst, things that are in opposition to God start getting confronted. If there's demonic activity, chains start to break. If there's sickness, many times healing begins to happen. If there's people far from God, he begins to draw hearts. If there's brokenness, he begins to heal hearts. He begins to restore all the good things, right? All the things that happen when God's kingdom is moving forward. Salvation and healing and deliverance and freedom and peace and joy and justice begin to be released because God is there and his kingdom is beginning to be manifested. That's awesome. And it's so much more than us just singing songs together. <laughs> there's a throne that comes like in the middle of our worship this is powerful this is so powerful i've seen it when you guys do your outreach when you go out into a public place and you're worshiping in in public remember that you're inviting the very throne of god to come sit in the midst of your songs and it's so simple and it's so weak but it's so real and god will begin to move and sometimes you see it real clearly, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you understand it later. Sometimes it's dramatic, and sometimes it's subtle. And so, you know, it's not about, like, what exactly it looks like. But we do it in faith, and we welcome his presence, and we welcome his kingdom. Psalm 16, verse 5, this is a prophecy of Jesus, the throne of Jesus. In mercy, the throne will be established. One will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. So the Bible uses the word Zion to describe this, this reality. So Jerusalem is Zion. The mountain where David set up this tent was called Zion. But when you begin to study this idea of Zion in the Scriptures, you see it kind of became more of a poetic term uh, and kind of morphed throughout, throughout time. But you see two main ideas related to Zion. Number one is God is praised and worshipped in Zion. Number two, you see God is the king, and he rules and he reigns in Zion. Those two dimensions. And so I just call them the, the priestly and the kingly dimensions, right? The priestly being our worship and our praise and our prayers, and then the kingly dimension being the advancement of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Those two things together, if you guys can understand that those two things go together, it will be revolutionary for your understanding of worship. This is what David's tabernacle shows us. This is what the heavenly throne room shows us. God's government flows from worship 
that which is kingly flows from that which is priestly. And so the, the Bible uses the word Zion to describe this. Uh, Hebrews 12.22 says, You have come to Mount Zion. This is, Hebrews is talking about us as Christians coming to God in Christ. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So now Zion's in heaven. In David's day, Zion's on the earth. It's the same thing. It's the presence of God with God's throne in the midst of his people who are worshiping him. It's the same reality on earth, and it's the same reality in heaven. And this is uh, what King David established. I love Psalm 22.3. I'm so thankful for it. It's just such a great little catchy phrase. God is enthroned in praises. That's just, just remember that uh, as you're worshiping, as you're, as you're singing, that God comes with his throne. So if it's not weird enough already, talking about David's tabernacle in Zion, I'm going to bring up Melchizedek, okay? Just trying to find all the weird Bible phrases that we don't ever talk about and throw them all into one teaching here. All right, but the reason I want to bring up Melchizedek is because he was a priest and a king in the days of Abraham. There's this crazy story of Abraham encountering this guy named Melchizedek who was the king of Salem, which became Jerusalem. He was the king of Salem, but he was also a priest to God. And Abraham encountered this guy, and they actually had bread and wine together an amazing foreshadowing of Jesus, but also a foreshadowing in a small way of David also, who was also the king and functioned as a priest. So you see this pattern between Melchizedek and David and then to Jesus. And so in Psalms 110 verse 4, it's one of David's songs about Jesus, about the Messiah coming. And it says that he would rule and reign from Zion and it says that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So in Psalm 110, you get David, Melchizedek, and Jesus all in one psalm there, tied together. So what is the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, I believe if we can understand what priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek means, we can understand what the heck was happening at David's tabernacle. <laughs> and we can understand why he was doing what he was doing and how he got away with it and didn't get in trouble. Because I believe there are two priesthoods that you see in the Bible, clearly. Okay, you have, uh, and, and the book of Hebrews, if we wanted to deep dive through the book of Hebrews, you could, you could really begin to see this. But it points out the old covenant and the old covenant priesthood with Israel, and the new covenant, and what's called the priesthood of Melchizedek, what I might call the heavenly priesthood. And so, to summarize for you, in that passage in Hebrews 12, it, you see him talking about Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion, and contrasting these two ideas. And so, uh, when David set up his tent, by the way, the old tent, the tabernacle of Moses, was still set up. It was still going in the town of Gibeon, but it didn't have the ark inside of it. So uh, Levitical priests, some of them were still going through, following the law, offering the burnt offerings and sacrifices in the Mosaic tabernacle because God had commanded them to. So they were obeying the Lord. This was the law. But there was no ark in it. 
There was no glory in that tabernacle. They were going through the motions. Meanwhile, uh, in Zion, David's got the, the ark in a new tent, and they're offering sacrifices of praise. And so you get this picture of two different tabernacles and two different priesthoods, I believe, that were functioning at the same time. So you had sort of the old covenant Mount Sinai priesthood, and then you had the new covenant Mount Zion priesthood. And I'm not saying one is bad and one is good. What I'm saying is, is one is limited and one is temporary, and there's one that's eternal. So some people try to go like, oh, Moses' tabernacle was so bad and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it was God's idea. Like, he was trying to relate to Israel and trying to keep them in covenant with himself and also point to Jesus through all of it. So Mount Sinai, the old covenant, that was made just with Israel. And then in Jesus, in Christ, you have a new covenant that's made with the church, with anyone who puts their faith in him. In the old covenant, in the Mosaic tabernacle, was the Levitical priesthood, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. It was limited. It was just for Israel. It was just for those covenant people. And it was just for a temporary time in order for them to relate to God until the Messiah has come. And in the New Covenant in Mount, on Mount Zion, there's another priesthood that's functioning, and it's the priesthood of heaven. And David is operating, when he sets up his tent on Mount Zion, he's setting it up and operating it in an entirely different priesthood. It's the priesthood of Melchizedek. So Mount Zion, the sons of Levi ministered to the Lord as priests. It was the tabernacle of Moses. They offered blood of bull and goats, and they offered burnt offerings. And in Mount Zion, sons of God minister to the Lord, not just sons of Levi, but anyone who's a son or daughter of God. I just said sons to keep it similar, but sons and daughters. Instead of the tabernacle of Moses, the church, we are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. We are the new David's tabernacle. And the blood of Jesus provides atonement for sins, and we offer spiritual sacrifices of praise. So there's these two tabernacles happening in David's day, and it's two separate priesthoods. David wasn't breaking the laws because he wasn't operating in the old covenant and the old priesthood that was established with Israel. He was looking to heaven where God's government flows from pure worship in spirit and in truth. It's an eternal priesthood. The priesthood of Melchizedek is described as being perpetual, Psalm 110, that it carries on forever. And David's saying, there's another way to relate to God that's God's original purpose for us and his eternal purpose for us, and we can relate to God in that way. And David opened up for 33 years and then even for a while in Solomon's day, a new way for God's people to relate to him. It's actually an old way, and it's an eternal way to relate to God. And so, this understanding, I believe, about understanding what priesthood we are a part of helps us to understand what, what was going on in David's tabernacle because this is the priesthood we get to be a part of. The priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, this heavenly priesthood. So see, why were there two tabernacles? Because there were two priesthoods. D, how did David and the Levites access God's presence? Access to God's presence was through faith in the Messiah not because they were or were not of the tribe of Levi. 
Jesus has made a way for all believers to access God's presence through faith in Christ. I love these verses from Hebrews. Uh, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 10.19-22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. E, was David breaking the law? No, an airplane continues to fly in spite of the law of gravity. It flies not because it has annulled the law of gravity, because it has taken advantage of a greater law, the law of lift. David was not annulling the law of Moses, but he brought Israel into an entirely different priesthood that had a whole different set of rules. Hebrews 7.12 says, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. David wasn't breaking the rules. He was following a different set of rules based on the different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Why did David and the Levites offer praise instead of burnt offerings? The sacrifices changed because heavenly sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices. It wasn't about the songs per se. It was about the spiritual sacrifices. And why were Gentiles involved? Because in the new covenant, it's not just Israel. It's all the nations. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. God, I pray that you would help us to worship in spirit and in truth. Help us to prioritize your presence. Teach us what it means more and more to be priests before you. And I pray that uh, the spirit of the tabernacle of David would just arise in your church and in your people. And that those, even in this room, Lord, would, would carry the heart of David, that desire for your presence, that desire for nearness to you, that desire to invite others to come into your presence and to know you and to love you, Jesus. Uh, that you would teach them and teach me and teach us how to minister to you how to host your presence in a way that honors you and loves you. And I pray that these, these biblical truths would just be like roots in their lives that would keep them grounded in the, the understanding of your heart and grounded as they sing before you, as they minister to you, and as they worship you. Lord, that they would, they would have a, a bigger picture and an understanding of what's really going on in your heart and uh, the, the power of worship and the power of of the songs that we offer to you in our hearts and our lives that we lay down before you and uh, we love you jesus in your name we pray amen